0: I am tasked this morning with um, talking about the second half of John chapter 4. Um, I think that we just can't help but grab some background before we do that exactly. But I do want, as we start out, to make a couple of, to make a couple of introductory remarks about this. And I'm going to start in in, the, in John chapter four, verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Galilee, and he had to pass through. Samaria. And He had to pass through Samaria. You know, I, I think one of the most significant things about this story is its historical content, its historical significance. Talking about a town named Sychar, which is very close to the to the the city Shechem. In fact, uh, maybe Shechem was raised uh, about a hundred. B.C. and the inhabitants moved to cities of Sychar and um, I have to look at my notes. <laughs> Nablus. I'll get that one in my notes in a minute. But we're talking about we're talking about a historically significant place. God called Abraham out of Haran. Out of, quite possibly, idolatry. And he came to the Promised Land and where he came and built an altar, and later Jacob built an altar there too, was Shechem. So, when Joseph's bones were were taken up out of egypt where did they go shechem when the bloody the bloody tribes the bloody children of jacob found out that their sister had been violated where were they they were at shechem and in fact when jacob called for his army to bury to, to to be sanctified to God, they buried their idols right at a, a large oak tree or a terebinth tree right at Shechem. A lot of things happened here. Abraham's first reference was that he traveled southward through Canaan until he reached the great tree of Morah at Shechem. And we know that those great trees were often used as places of worship. The trees themselves. Great shade. You're talking about an arid climate. A place to go and, and worship was under the shade of a huge tree. And this huge tree that was at Shechem was well noted. You notice that pagan idolatrous worship was often in groves of trees here at Shechem. Jacob bought this bought this land again apparently and dug wells there. Watered his herds out of This very well, apparently. What may be most significant, in my mind anyway, is Shechem, or Sychar, is located between two mountains Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. So, you know, you're looking at mountains here, a passageway between them. The place where they were commanded every year to read through the law, the blessings and the cursings. The blessings came, you know, and you're looking at maybe almost an amphitheater. You know, you've got somebody standing up on this mountain shouting the curses from Mount Ebel and the blessings from Mount Gerizim to a place that's very, very near these wells that Jacob dug and that we find this Samaritan woman at. So historically significant place. Shechem's place of Joseph's burial. I already mentioned that. Abimelech, the son of Gideon, who arrogantly went to take this city. He went so close that a woman dropped a millstone off the wall, killing Abimelech. happened right here at Shechem. Shechem's mentioned by David in some of his laments. It was ultimately Jeroboam's capital. After the, the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel often, in the southern kingdom of Judah. They actually set up a golden bull so that the northern tribe didn't have to go into Judah, to Jerusalem, to worship. So they set up a golden bull right there at Mount Gerizim. Let me back up and just tell you that Joshua created huge memorials where apparently had the, the, the word of the law on monuments. Um, at least the Ten Commandments but maybe much of the law on big stones. A stone monument. Think Washington Monument. Think Mount Rushmore. This is a, this is a big, historical, significant site. Historically significant site. And we know very clearly that the Assyrians came in about 722 and deported huge amounts of the people that were there in Shechem, and they were there in Samaria, and then began to intermingle with them. So, you've got this quasi-religion that we've got this golden bull up on the mountain, right there in the shadow of where Jesus is talking to this gal. So you've got this, this golden, golden bull. You've got people who believe in the Pentateuch. They're very loyal to the Pentateuch, but they've got this Assyrian stuff mixed in. And, and just for the record, just as a, Author's note here, when you think Samaria, think Jonah. Think Assyria. Why did Jonah not want to go to the Assyrians? Because he knew what kind of God God was. He knew that God was gracious and compassionate. And that if these people repent, he might just spare them. Grandchildren of the people who heard Jonah's message might have been part of the people, part of the gene pool here in Samaria. And we see Jesus with with a command from Scripture, with a command, well, with a need to go through Samaria, with a need to take the most direct geographical route. You know, he's here in Judah. He's down here in the in the Judean countryside, outside of Jerusalem, and what are they arguing about? They're arguing about baptism. You know, John's baptizing people, Jesus is baptizing people, and Jews don't need to be baptized. All Jews need is the little ceremonial washing that kind of falls off the end of their robe, and they're clean. I mean, they're not really clean. They're just ceremoniously ritualistically a religious rite kind of clean. So the Jews are getting more and more incensed. People are saying, is this Jesus' baptism or John's baptism? Although John even points out to us that Jesus himself wasn't baptizing people. But you know, there's all this political hubbub. You know, the tweets are flying. You know, Jesus's baptism, John's baptism, What do the Pharisees or the Jews say about this? Jesus basically says, I've got to get out of here. My hour is not yet come. He doesn't say that in this passage, but, you know, almost as if I've got to get out of this, this politically, religiously charged situation, and I want to take the most direct route to Judea. He's not publicly come out as the Messiah. Yet, not really said those words. He's not necessarily said, I am. But, um, he's getting ready to. And he picks maybe the oddest place in the world to do that, if you think about it. So he had to pass through Samaria. In verse 5, he says, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Archaeologists think that they have found this. In fact, there appears to be a, um, a monastery built called St. Photoni, I hope I'm saying that right, supposedly named after this Samaritan woman. Her name, supposedly, according to at least Orthodox tradition, was Fatoni. Um, so this monastery that's built there now, over top of Jacob's well, you know, I've read accounts of people going to it um, and saying, you know, that the water is about sixty feet, maybe even a hundred feet below the surface of the ground, um, but apparently a real live place that we still understand where it is today. Jesus is sitting beside the well. And and I just want to point out, so Jesus, wearied as He was from His journey, exhausted, was sitting by the well about the sixth hour, which is about noon. Um. By the way, we would render things. So here he is in the heat of the day, and as Moon pointed out last week, the well may be the farthest away. Maybe there were other wells that were in that area, but apparently this was the well that was the farthest outside of town. He's sitting there, and he he's sitting there at about the twelfth hour. Generally, women would go to the well at dusk. You know, no one. This might have something to do with her status in this city. That she's in the heat of the day going out to the to the well at noon. Jesus, apparently by himself, we find out later that the disciples had gone into town to find some food for them, uh, wearied as they were. There came to, in verse 7, a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And I just want to pause and just say, look at what Jesus is doing. Jesus is asking something of someone that obviously, as it's been pointed out already, you know, somebody that Jews would not associate with. But he reaches out to her in such a way that he asks her to do something for him. Which, by the way, I think people have called that the Benjamin Franklin effect. Named after Benjamin Franklin, one of the things that, that um, he did with one of his rivals politically was he asked to borrow a book um, that he had and, and he was aware that it was in his possession. So he asked for something of a rival Which eventually gave them something to talk about, something to something to share, which was, you know, quite tactical. And I don't think that there was any. I I think that Jesus was looking for a way to engage this woman. He was tired. He needed to drink. He asked for a drink. A beautiful way, by the way, to engage someone is to give them an opportunity uh, to serve you. And that's exactly what Jesus did. We find out in verse 8, for His disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to Him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from Me? A woman of Samaria. The author makes sure we understand, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus Jesus answered her, she gives him a bit of a sarcastic tone, you know what why would you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jesus responds pretty calmly and says, "If you knew the gift of God and who it is that was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water, as Moon pointed out. Living water, moving water. We're talking about a well here, something that's pretty, um, pretty much in one place versus a flowing stream. Living water, something that's, you know, cistern versus, although I don't believe this was a cistern, but living water would be an example of something that is flowing and moving, um, outside of here. So, so, He would ask him, Have you given you living water? The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. How are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? Jacob being somebody that they both can go back to, the Samaritans and the Jews, as their father, but you can hear the sarcastic tone um, when he when when he mentions that he wants to give her living water. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And I just I, I would point out to you she's made several references already to her culture, to her history to the way she does things, the way she was trained to do things, back to our father Jacob. We're talking about baptism, water jars. Where did we hear that before? Back in Cana? Water jars, baptism, living water, rituals. Probably the main point that I would like to pull out of this as we get down further into this passage. Let me just say this to you up front. Are you relying on your ritual? Your culture? The things even religiously that you've established? I don't don't know if you have ever lived in an area... Where the culture is so proud of where they live. But there are places in the world, sometimes even people wear symbols on their clothing that denote uh, <coughs> their place of origin, their history, their people. Um, you know, while some wear t shirts or something like that, some people even when they're wearing something a bit dressier, Will find a way to let that emblem find its way, uh, so that they, as you know, that you make sure, so they make sure that you know what they stand for, who they are, where they're from, uh, what they're proud of. That's all this woman has been doing so far. She's been sarcastic. She's been, um, she's pointed out, her religious background. And she's getting ready to do more of that in this, in this area. And one of the things I would say to you children and adults by proxy, you can, um, you can grow up in a religious system. What you'll figure out about 50 years from now are all the various and sundry many mistakes um, that people from Providence Bible Church made. You're going to look back on your your religious history, and you're going to say, "Wow, that was really weird. Why did we do that?" I think they really missed the point when they emphasized this thing about religion, or they emphasized that thing. You know, I think it would be better if we did it this way. You know, you're going to you're going to look back and and think about those things, but I think the point of this passage is. God is Spirit. And His worshipers must worship Him in spirit and in truth. It's not just about the religious ritual. I think one of the things that we do well here at Providence Bible Church is every week we want to take the Lord's table. We think that's important. And I think it's important. Jesus said it was important. He said, you know, To do this and remember me. I think it's important. But just the ritual of eating bread and drinking juice is not going to save you. What you're going to have to do, children, is come face to face with the Messiah. You're going to have to come face to face with God yourself. And when you do that, People are, people in this book are reacting in a lot of different ways. If you're part of the religious establishment, you say, oh my goodness, we got to get this guy quiet. If you're part of the crowd, you're saying, hey, free nachos. You know, this is good. This guy feeds you, he's got food. Hey, He's got extra wine. Really good wine. You might be part of that crowd that's drawn to the fervor, but one of the things that I would encourage you to be is a worshiper. A worshiper of God in spirit, in sincerity, in spirit, and in truth. Sincere. In fact, when Joshua... um, set people on Mount Gerizim and um, Mount Ebal, one of the things he was saying to them was, are you going to follow the gods that your fathers followed? Are Amorites? Or are you going to choose Yahweh, Jehovah? Choose you this day whom you will serve. And... And I guess that's our, that's our encouragement from this Scripture is for us to choose you this day whom you will serve. Let's go ahead and keep on with this narrative. Jesus said to her kindly verse 13, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give Him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give Him will become in Him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She's not getting this yet. Of course, Jesus is not necessarily laying it out there in a way that it's easy to get. He is kind of speaking cryptically as he often does. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Then Jesus crosses a line. He says, go and get your husband and I'll tell you about how to get this water. Jesus, by the way, doesn't, um, doesn't shy away from what personal sin that she had in her life. Didn't shy away from her personal hardship. He or his disciples didn't shy away from the Samaritans at all. They went straight into the town to buy food. Which for a religious Jew, you know, you don't go into a Samaritan village to eat Hot dogs? You know what? Well, they, they, I mean, is this kosher or, or, or what? What well, I'm asking myself. But they didn't seem to mind about those things because I think they had a, they had something that was much more important for her to see and something much more important that they were going after. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. You know, divorce was rampant in, in Jerusalem Divorce was rampant in Samaria. Obviously, this gal had a habit of, for whatever reason, being in divorce situations. And as often happens in those situations, at some point, you you don't even bother getting married. You just kind of live together for a while. And Jesus called attention to that. Going back to Shechem just for a minute. What did God do to Israel when they set up this golden bull and started that worship? Did you realize that God divorced Israel, you know that God was Himself a divorcee of the pagan northern tribe that that um, rejected Him. They had all of their kings were evil in Israel. They did not follow God's word, and He set them aside and later remarried Israel. When Jesus said this, and I don't know how Jesus said this. Some people suggest that Jesus was all-knowing and knew everything and that's why He knew her marital history. Of course, you know, maybe he's talked to people around the. Um, maybe he this wasn't the first person he encountered at the well. Maybe he was talking to somebody and oh, here here comes uh, Lila Jane Photonia. You know, you know she's had five husbands and she's living with a guy that's not her husband now. I don't know. Sometimes people tend to think that Jesus was omniscient at all times. I tend to think that he. And I'm not trying to make this a doctrinal statement of the church, by the way, but I tend to think he veiled much of his humanity while he was here, and that was the whole point of of, of veiling that or veiling his God. Sorry, he did not veil his humanity. That's even worse of a theological statement I'm making now. But anyway, he veiled a lot of his deity, and he wasn't just because he was Jesus knowing everything that was going on, I tend to think that he was more human and what he got that was divine revelation was that was was divine revelation that he got. And it doesn't point out that that um, doesn't point out specifically in the scriptures that this was divine revelation. But let me tell you something she thought it was. She's like, apparently you know we only probably have fragments of this conversation, but apparently from what John said, or the way John presents it, that's the point at which she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And I think just thinking through when she says that, I think my temptation is to say, I think that you might be a prophet. Apparently, the Greek is a little more specific here, and then she's putting forth the idea that I believe, I perceive that you are a prophet. Maybe it's a result of this. Maybe it's a result of a lot of things that he said. Maybe the light bulbs are just coming on. So she asked the prophet, someplace that she thought she was going to get some divine revelation, she says, what was the first question on her mind? Let me just point it out to you. What did she say? What was the first question on her mind when she perceived that there was something different about Jesus? She went right back to the ritual, by the way. Right back to, you know, we're in the context of baptism. Which baptism is right? Is it Jesus? Is it John's? Is it the ceremonial washing of the Pharisees? She goes right back to ritual and says, so if you're a prophet, question I want to ask a prophet is, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Again, Mount Gerizim, right behind her. But you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Good question. Who's got the right worship spot? That's that's you know, I don't I don't know who's got the right worship style, who's got the right worship service, who's got the right worship dress? Who's got the right worship ritual? You know, substitute whatever you want to do to, 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 to apply this. Let the Holy Spirit apply it to you. Where's the right place to worship? Because, you know, it's all about the worship. We've got to worship.'ve got to figure this out. Jesus answers her question and tells her much more than she was asking. Jesus said to her, "Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father." So it's an interesting turn of phrase there. He says the hour is coming and it is now here. And I and I can't help but think, you know, he's saying to himself or maybe he's prophetically saying Maybe because of some divine revelation, he appears to know that when he's approaching Jerusalem with his disciples, he appears to know that not one stone will be left on another. When Titus comes through, he raises, he destroys Jerusalem. And you know what else he does? He destroys the temple at Mount Gerizim. So, I can't help but think that there's a prophetic tone here to what he's saying, that the hour is coming. You know what? These worship sites are not going to be here. I don't know. Bring it to modern day. Providence Bible Church may not be here. What's important? The time is coming. And it now is. When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The true God. And it's interesting that he uses the word Father there too, just thinking that through. If you say the word Father, what does that imply? A son. A son. Not on this mountain or any other mountain will you worship the Father. And he again is not necessarily politically correct here because he tells her straight up you worship what you do not know. Your religious system is so whacked, you know, let's not even go into that. You got a golden bull up here. You're mixed in with the Assyrians. Your religion is... Seriously, you don't know what you're doing. Um, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Oh, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Salvation is from the Jews. And what should you hear in the background? Because the Jews don't have it... The Jews have the very oracles of God. And they're better off because of that. Romans tells us that. But guess what? The very oracles of God? Not good enough. If, and I think this is a good place to hear the Gospel, children. And I say children because it's so obvious to say it to children, but I'm telling you, it's adults too. I mean... We need to examine ourselves. What is our worship? Who are we worshiping? What kind of worship do we have? Do we really think that what Jason did this morning is worship? Or is that a piece of worship? Or is that a symbolic of what might be happening in your heart? And I say to you children, just because you grew up in a Christian home and just because you go to a church that I think does give a pretty clear Gospel message, um, I do think, I'm sure we've messed up so many things that I don't even realize. I know we've messed up some stuff because I figured that out. But I'm sure there's tons of things we've messed up that I don't really even realize. But He says salvation is from the Jews. And when he says that, I think what he means is, as we're going to see later in the passage, is I... And from, I am, let me just use the context, the language of this context, I am from the Jews. I am a Jewish man. I have come through the line of David. I am. The ritual is not as important as the object. The object of your worship Children, you can grow up in a Christian home. You can grow up knowing the very oracles of God and live like every pagan that's around you. And it all happens right in here, right in our heart, in spirit and in truth. But the hour is coming and is now here where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not about the ritual, it's not about the order of service. It's not about the traditions that we tack into. not about necessarily eating a meal or observing the Lord's table or the way we observe the Lord's table. Um, Although, by the way, I think those things are important and I think they should be discussed and they should be thought through and you should come up with the best rituals that you you can perceive. But the ritual is not the thing. I am is the thing. And when I say I am, children, just for... Clarification's sake. I'm not talking about me. I'm saying when Jesus, when God uses the word to describe himself to Abraham, he says, I am. He's talking about himself. He says, I am. And you're going to hear this in John 30 sometimes. I don't know how many times. Probably close to 40 times. Jesus is going to say, I am. And he's going to say several times, he's going to say, I am the bread of life. I am um, I am the door. I am. He's going to use symbolism, but mostly what he's trying to communicate is I am Yahweh. I am God. So, what's the most important thing to get right in worship? It's not the style of music. It's not whether you sing music or not, or whether you chant like Gregorians. Um, or whether you have a, 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 a you do use the psalter, you know I, I don't know, or the Google, or anything else. Um, what's the most important thing is that you get the object of the worship, and that's what and that's what she's gonna get. Let me just give you a foreshadowing here. The woman said, and the woman has the Pentateuch. By the way, maybe trained in the Pentateuch. In her little Samaritan school, um, you know, maybe they they understand from Deuteronomy chapter 18 that the prophet's coming, the Messiah is coming. So he he's connecting with her. Okay, I'm connecting with you. I know that Messiah is coming, and John helps us out with a little Greek definition by saying, "He who is called the Christ," again, just the Anointed One. The one, I always told my kids, the one with oil on his head. Um, that's the word Messiah. That's the word Christ. Same, same word, different language. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So she's, she's like, you're a prophet and you know things, but I know that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he'll clear all this up. He knows all things, Jesus says to her in startling revelation, who does He reveal Himself to? This is wild. I just want you to see that real quick. He came unto His own, and His own did not receive Him. But to everyone who received Him, He gave the right to become, wait for it, children of God. Where did he cho- choose to most clearly define who he was? In Samaria. I mean, you've got to even just like change your voice when you say Samaria. You've you got to say it like it's a question, like whether or not you should mention that name. You've got to say, Samaria. And Itzhak Rabin, to this, you know, in our modern times, has insisted that that area be called Samaria in in our modern world because that was the uh you know that's the that's the most historically accurate name according to him um, it wasn't Itzhak Na I'm sorry it was a knock and begging. Um a prime minister a former prime minister of israel but anyway um You got to say Samaria. You know where does where does the I am choose to reveal Himself? Samaria shows us what we know, right? We've got all this good Baptist theology. We've thought about it all our lives, and what does He do? He goes right down the road and goes to the Pentecostals. You know what I'm saying? Anything good? Come out of there? Or He goes... But the point is, He reveals Himself to people who are true worshipers. And true worshipers worship Him in spirit and in truth. Jesus said to her, I am. Maybe a better way of, of, of shuffling that out, but we still have it translated. But just listen to Him. He says, I who speak to you am He. Shorten that down in there. What He was saying was, I am. I who speak to you am. I am He. Well, according to this narrative, I don't know how long this happened, but according to this narrative, just then his disciples came back. And when they they marveled that he was talking with a woman got to say that with a question mark too. But they had been around long enough that nobody said, What do you seek? Or, why are you talking to her? They just kept their mouth shut. And listen to what, in John's beautiful language, what did she leave? So the woman left her water jar. Earlier in this narrative, just to remind you, God took a ceremonial water jar and made beautiful wine out of it. So, is it important what's on the outside or what's on the inside? Isn't that I mean, don't you see that metaphorically going through this passage? Um, It's more important. Where does living water? The important thing is the living water. The important thing is not the jar. He asked for a drink. It's not the jar. It's not what kind of jar you have for your wedding. It's what kind of wine you have. It's What kind of living water that's inside of you? She left that water jar and went away to town and said to all the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Christ? Can this be the answers to all our questions? And she went probably a woman of not real high standing in this community. You know, She's the kind of woman that when she comes up towards your husband, you kind of step in front of him. You know what I'm saying? But she is going out to every one of the townspeople and saying, can this be the Christ? Come see a man that told me everything I did. Which I don't know how long that conversation was, but at least pointed out one thing to her. Can this be the Christ? And what happens? They went out of the town and were coming to Him. Then we've got a little side story here. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Him, saying, Rabbi, eat, eat. You know, you haven't eaten anything. I don't even think you've got a drink of water out of this deal. Just for the record. Apparently not. I don't know, maybe after she left the water jar. Uh, anyway, anyway, that's not the main point of the story. But He's like, you got to eat, Master. And in his cryptic way, he's in the mood. You know, he's doing the living water thing, uh, and he's kind of in the mood. So he says, uh, he answers his disciples by saying, "I have food to eat that you do not know about." So the disciples said one to another, "Hey, did that woman give him something to eat? Who brought him something to eat? Won't you guys sneak him something to eat?" They're, they're not missing it, but he's in, he's in the mode. He's in the zone right now. And he's like, Jesus said to him, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Is that our, is that our food? I mean, is that what's really important to us? You know what we do with our lives, by the way? Just for the record. We do what's really important to us. And he's saying, me revealing myself to, as Messiah to these Samaritans is more important than eating. Apparently more important than drinking. Um, wearied as he was. My food. And, and I'll I just ask us all, what is our passion? What, you know, what is your passion? What, what are you spending your time doing? What are we spending our time? What is our food? In fact, you know, we're getting ready to have a fellowship meal, something that Christians have done for, you know, centuries. We're getting ready to have a fellowship meal. Is the most important thing who made the best food? Or is the most important thing interacting with each other, enjoying each other, sharing our burdens, sharing our joys? Sharing our sorrows, becoming one body, one loaf, to borrow from Jesus' cryptic messages. Becoming one loaf, is that more important? Or is it, you know, who's got the best casserole? My food is to do the work of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. And then, as many commentators have pointed out, in in marvelous illustration form, here comes a bunch of people from the town of Samaria, a Samaritan town, Sychar. You know, they're coming with all their little white clothes on. Quite possibly, they would wear in harvest time, and he says. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. All these people are coming towards Him. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together for... Here, the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap what you did not labor. Others have labored. And you have entered into their labor. Jesus has done the hard work of confronting a woman. God has moved in her heart. And she has immediately spread that all over the place. And here comes the harvest. You guys have been out at Wendy's looking for something to eat. But let me tell you something. My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. That's more important. And here they come. Now, as these people come and Jesus ends up staying there two days, and man, I'm telling you, that must have been a Bible college education in like two days. I bet you they didn't eat. They didn't sleep. They just stood there at the feet of Jesus doing what was important. They loved it. But He said, go. Go. Go reap. What I've sown. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to Him, they asked Him to stay with them and He stayed there two days. So He's there two days and here's this next one. They believed in Him. Of course, we see earlier in this book, Jesus didn't entrust Himself to every man because He knew what was in the heart of every man. But they stayed two more days learning about Jesus, learning about what He said. And we get this verse, verse 41. And many more believed because of His Word. They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Tell your friends. But let me tell you something. In your evangelism, it's not the right plan it's not the right ritual. It's not necessarily the Romans Road. I have nothing against that. I'm not trying to preach against that. But it's not necessarily the strategy that you use. It's that you share. It's that you share. But people have to interact with His Word are the words that are in this passage. They've got to come to God themselves. So you can sow, but it's God that gives the increase. It's Jesus that's drawing this woman. It's the Holy Spirit that's drawing this woman in. And with her, remarkably, the town of Sychar. And so appropriately, what's the next verse? After two days, He went on to Galilee, to his the Jews, to His people, to go... Share the good news about who He is because salvation is from the Jews. And what's the commentary here? Even before He leaves, the way we get it in the story. For Jesus Himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in His hometown. So He came to Galilee. The Galileans welcomed Him, having seen that all He had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. What happened in Sychar is weird. I mean, if you were telling this story, I don't think this is the way we think the story's going to go. These are the underdogs. These are the outcasts. Jesus went there and proclaimed a clear message of His Messiahship And what happened? They came out in droves. This never happened in Judean cities. You know? A whole city didn't convert. In fact, what's he end up at the end of his ministry saying about Chorazim? Bethsaida? Capernaum? He said, if I preached like I preached in Capernaum, people in Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented. But you guys are hard-hearted. Take that with you guys. Take that with you about your worship. The gospel does two things. Listen to this. The gospel does two things. It finds an open heart and opens that heart and makes that heart soft and humble. Who did he choose? A woman that had five husbands the one she was living with now isn't her husband that's how he's that's how he chose to sow the gospel into a city of samaritans and what does it do to people who are religious and self-righteous it hardens their heart in this room i say children i want to say adults especially listen the Gospel message in your life from week to week is doing one of two things. It's making you harder. It's making you more inaccessible. It's 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 developing a shell around you that you can protect yourself with religious ritual. You can protect yourself with a clean way of living. Or it can soften you and make you humble. And you can be a senator like Nicodemus or... A woman like Patonia. And accept the beautiful Word that's planted in you because it's not about the jar. Leave the jar. It's about the living water. Don't worry about what it looks like. Worry about what it is like. Because those who worship Him Worship Him in sincerity, and worship Him in spirit, in spirit and in truth. And those are the kind of worshipers that God seeks. It's not going to be about denominations. Much to our Baptist chagrin, there's no check mark on the ballot up there in heaven. You don't have to check Baptist to get in there, okay? just saying. Now, that's the way I would have done it. But it's not about that. It's not about the ritual. It's about coming face to face with I Am. And you can do that as a child. You can do that as a teenager. And you can look around and see many examples of people who do both. People who get harder. And people who get softer. God needed to go through Samaria. And let me just say this. This is a little bit of a license I'm taking here. Unless you become like these Samaritans, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. Father, thank You for this passage. Thank You for Your Scriptures. I know that there's so much more in here we could have mined today. Uh, I'm thankful for for this account that You have written for us that we can know that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing on Him, we might have life in His name. May we all come face to face and accept the One who is speaking to us is I Am. And let me just... I just want to pray real personally. God, the people that are in this room, I love them. Use Your Gospel to penetrate all of our hearts and to accept humbly the Word that you put in our, our, our hearts. I just pray that none of these people would be lost. None of these people, none of these children in this room would would grow up to to flee from You and to harden their hearts, that they would be soft people dedicated to You. Thank You.